Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. Amen. Last week, we were in the book of Haggai, those two wonderful chapters, and um, Brendan McPeak gave a wonderful message. If you missed the book of Haggai, uh, you can go back on our podcast, Refuge Young Adults in the Apple Podcast thing, and listen back to that one. Um, It'll bless the socks right off your feet. And um, powerful, powerful book of the Bible. And um, Zechariah kind of fits right in alongside of Haggai. They were prophesying together around the same time. And the book of Zechariah is also in the post-exilic books of the minor prophets. So this is them coming out of exile. Remember in Haggai, they had been in exile in Babylon. Babylon was conquered by who? Persia. Yes, that is very good. Right? It goes, who was first? It goes, the Assyrians. So there's the Assyrian Empire, just history lesson. Assyrian Empire, then the Babylonian Empire, then the Persian Empire, and there's one more to come. Who knows? Rome. Rome is coming, okay? Remember the time of Jesus, the Romans are in control. So we're seeing those successive um, kingdoms coming through. Rome has not yet come on the radar here, but Persia is in control. And Persia has now let the Jews go back in 50,000 Jewish remnant go back into the land and they begin to build. They begin to build the house of the Lord. And so Zechariah is prophesying around those times as well. He's kind of like the prologue. Zechariah is kind of like the prologue to the New Testament because there is so much forward momentum, meaning that he is going to point us towards the first coming and the second coming of Christ. It's pretty amazing the the detail in which he gives us in these um, these prophecies are incredible. So if you're like, I don't know about the Bible, I don't know about its validity, just wait till you read Zechariah. And um, this is 800 years or so before Jesus comes. Okay, After Malachi, there's 400 years of silence. No word from heaven until J to the B shows up on the scene. Jesus is born, the, the final prophet, right? Okay, so, so there's this great distance between the coming of Christ and the prophecy of Zechariah. So he is like the prologue, pointing us ahead, and there's, there's a lot of forward momentum, whereas Malachi is the epilogue to the Old Testament that serves like a coda on all things Old Testament. So he's going to sum up everything that's kind of been said throughout from the beginning of time to the end of this testament to the silence of the Lord for those next 400 years. Now, the writer of Zechariah, it says in verse 1, in the eighth month, the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Hurai, the son of Ido, the prophet, saying, The Lord has been very angry with your fathers, therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of God of hosts. Um, and before we get into that, it means that um, Zechariah, his name means God is renowned. Uh, it was of, he was perhaps of the priestly tribe or the tribe of Levi, uh, was born possibly in Babylon, born in captivity, in exile. And he returned with the first expedition called to encourage the builders with the view of the glorious future. Okay, so remember in Haggai, uh, Brennan taught us that they began to build the wall. They got discouraged and for 16 years, or they began to build the temple. And for 16 years, it sat just the half wall. 
They were so discouraged they stopped building. So Haggai comes along and he encourages them. The Lord is with you. Be strong. Be courageous. Let's get to work. And they're like, they're, what was the word? You're right. Like, let's get back to work. So they get back to work. And in five years, the temple is built. Zechariah is also prophesying during this time to encourage them not only to build this temple, but of the temple that is to come. Like the temple that would be uh, where Jesus would be um, after he was crucified, the temple where the, the veil would be torn in two. And now the, the Holy of Holies was exposed, where, where God was now coming forth from that temple, where we would have to come to God. Now God is coming to us. He came to us through his spirit. And we would become the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells, I don't know if you caught this phrase throughout the, the minor prophets, in your midst. Like every time you read that, highlight it, underline it, circle it, memorize it, in your midst or among you, that God's desire is to be with us. This is why his name is Emmanuel, God with us. There you go, right on, A plus. Okay, so I got off my notes and I lost where I was. I got really excited about, I don't know what I got excited about, but we got excited. So that's what he's pointing to, the future that is to come. And the key thought throughout, throughout this is that God is in this work, that God is in this work. And one of the, the key verses is Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9, that says, and the Lord shall reign forever. The theme of this book, right, we've had a theme for every book of the Bible, or every minor prophet. Zechariah is the prophet of visions, or the visions prophet. And the theme of the book is God's vision for Israel. God's vision for Israel. Um, Zechariah and Haggai, they're there to stir up the hearts, to renew their labor. Um, Zechariah is going to concentrate on their national and political situation, whereas Haggai was focusing on the heart of the people. Um, his ministry extended over two years, right? That's why they're minor prophets. They prophesied for a shorter amount of time. And he was used to bring the completion and restoration of the temple. His main ministry, however, looked far into the future, envisioning both the first coming of the Messiah and his return in power and great glory, which we are currently waiting for. The book is divided uh, simply like this. There's eight visions given in one single night. It reads like a crazy dream that you're having while you, you, you're sick with a fever. Anyone ever had a really bad fever and you hallucinate? Okay, that's what this book reads like. It's weird. And, it, and chapter five reads like a horror film. It is like someone should make a movie out of it and a soundtrack because it is weird. Some weird stuff happens. Zechariah sees some crazy stuff and we're gonna try and make sense <laughs> All these visions, okay? So special characteristics of the book, it's divided in eight visions, uh, deals largely in a variety of subjects, um, but the, this book has the highest concentration of messianic and millennial prophecies of his first coming as well as his second. I mean, it's like concentrated orange juice. Like, remember when you're a kid and it's frozen and bunk, and you add water, and it was like orange juice would come forth in gallons in this little can? That's what Zechariah is. It's concentrated orange juice of prophecy. If that makes any sense at all, I'm trying. Okay, here we go. I lost you. Okay. But here's what we're going to see. There's, there's some things that we're going to really focus in on towards the end of the book, but uh, we're nowhere near that at this point. But it talks about um, 
the branch or the sprout, which is a prophecy of the Messiah, the entry of Zion's lowly king, okay, Jesus coming into Jerusalem, the sale of Jesus by Judas, it's prophesied, um, the mourning over the pierced one, we're going to see that text in that prophecy then fulfilled in the Gospels, the fountain that is opened up to cleanse of sin, right? We sing that song, there is a fountain filled with blood. That's where this comes from, this fountain that comes forth to cleanse and wash sin. Um, the smitten servant, to smite means to beat, right? The, the fact that Jesus would be whipped and scourged. Um, we're going to see the glory of Jerusalem as the center of the world's worship in the kingdom that is to come. And at his second coming, he will be crowned as king. We're going to see all those things in these next 14 chapters. Are you ready? You have no choice. Here we go. The expression, thus saith the Lord, is found 89 times, 89 times in this little book. And the term Lord of hosts is seen 36 times. Zechariah contains more specific promises relative to the crucifixion than any other Old Testament book except Psalms, like, which is a hundred and so many chapters. I can't even remember because I forgot to look it up. But I'm sure we could find out real quick if we just did a little page turn, but I'm not going to do that. Here's what we do know, though. Zechariah is a powerful book filled with many prophecies, and we don't have that much time. Here we go. The book outlines like this. Chapters 1 through 6 are eight visions, 7 through 8, four messages, 9 through 14 is one king, okay? Eight visions, four messages, one king, verses 1 through 6. It says this, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of the son of Ido, the prophet, saying, The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus say the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets preached, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I command my servant the prophet, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, Just the Lord of hosts determined to do to us according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. In verses 1 through 6, the question is given to the nation of Israel, and it's this, Where are your fathers? Where are your fathers? You're going to see that phrase pop up multiple times when it talks about their fathers. And what it is, is a pointer back to the past. Father speaks of the past. Let's look at our forefathers. Let's look backwards for a minute. And, and the Lord is saying to them, like he reminded them, that they had left and gone out committing spiritual adultery. If you remember the book of Hosea, right? Hosea was all about the people of Israel committing spiritual adultery on the Lord. That there was supposed to be this spiritual union between them and God. An exclusive relationship. No other gods was the thing. And so the Lord paints this picture through Hosea and a prostitute named Gomer. If you don't remember the story, you could read it later. But God says to them, return. Right? Which is what, what are the three themes of the minor prophets, return, repent, restore. Those are the three themes, right? If, if they would return to the covenant, God would return to them. 
He would keep his promise to them. If they would repent of their sins, God would bring restoration. We have seen mess after mess after mess after mess. And all of that is pointing us to the Messiah that is to come. Like, I heard someone say one time, like, when you're a kid, you're like, I just want to change the world. And I remember someone saying, you can't change the world. (laughs) Don't tell... (laughs) And I was like, ow, that hurts. He's like, no, you can't change the world. That's why Jesus came. And I was like, oh, that, oh, right on. (laughs) Right? We should tell kids that. Hey, you can't change the world. That's why Jesus came. So relax. No, just kidding. Plastic's bad. Recycling. Change the world. (laughs) Anyway, save the uh, uh, whales. But they did not listen, right? That's, That's the... Ultimately, what we see throughout the the Minor Prophets is just a neglect to heed the words of God. Even Jesus in the New Testament says, if anyone has ears, let him hear. Meaning everyone who has ears, which was everyone. Listen up, pay attention. And, And what God is doing is pointing the people back to their fathers and their past and saying, you need to learn from the past. Look where your fathers are. They're buried in Babylon. Look, look where the prophets are. They're buried in captivity. Do not do what they did. It's time to do something different. You remember what, what, with Haggai, the people heard the word of the Lord, that God is with you, that he loves you. He wants you to build again. And they were encouraged and they said, okay, we'll do it. They listened for the first time in like history. Like they finally listened and they did it the first time and they got to work. So Zechariah starts off this letter by saying, let's learn from the past. And instead of doing the same thing, let's do something different and listen to the word of the Lord. George Wilhelm famously said, we learn from history that men can never learn anything from history. And that is the greatest lesson of all. He was speaking of the story, he used the story of Easter Island. You guys ever seen Easter Island, the the big heads, the Molokai that they built? They actually depleted all the resources of that island to build bigger and bigger Molokai and ultimately turned to cannibalism because they ran out of food. And those statues stand on that island as a remembrance to the people like, you have to take care of this island. Like you live on an island. If you deplete your resources like they did, you will all die and kill each other. It almost, they almost ate everybody. There was almost nobody left because of this kind of thing. And that's what George Wilhelm is looking towards this island. And he's saying, the thing that we have not learned from history is that men still don't learn from history. The nation of Israel, the, the prophet is saying to, to, to the people, he's saying, let's look back at history and let's learn from the past and let's say, Let's not do those things. This is not just an Old Testament idea. This is something that came in the New Testament as well. The Apostle Paul does it in the book of 1 Corinthians, and he says, let's not repeat the mistakes of the nation of Israel. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, it says this. Now these things became our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they, speaking of Israel, speaking of them coming out of the wilderness, out of Egypt, they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. Verse 11 then says, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the age have 
come. When it talks about examples, it's this word that means to make an imprint, like a typewriter pressing down into paper and then ink filling that spot. He says these things are to be an imprint and an example for us not to do that. That's why they're written in God's word to say, this is a warning to you. This is an example of what not to do, of what will be um, become destructive in your life to stay in this path and not that path. And it is of every generation, it's crazy, every generation looks back at the generation before it and says, why'd they do it that way, right? My generation looks back at the generation of pastors before it and they're like, bunch of weirdos, all like, you know, gung-ho and like, we're not going to drink anymore. We're not going to do this. And you're like, legalists. When in actuality, they had come out of these horrible lives of drugs and alcohol. And they said, I want something new. I want something different. I, want, I don't want anything to do with that old life. And then the generation next goes, I can handle it. <laughs> That's stupid. Um, as, as the Bible would say, That's dumb. Like, like men are men at best. They are men at best. Like at our best, we are men. Like that's it. Fallen, broken. And so anytime we say like, oh, that's not, I can handle that. Mm. Well, can you? I don't know. Don't be dumb. Anyway, that's what this says. Verse seven. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido, the prophet. And I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow. <laughs> and behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. Then I said, my Lord, what are these? So the angels who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said to thee, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord. Okay, that's a big deal. Who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. Supposedly, there's peace at this point. Uh, uh, Zechariah has a vision of these horsemen, uh, four horsemen, going back and forth throughout the earth, and their horses are different colors. Sorrel is like this brown, yellow, perhaps spotted. Um, and some are like, well, maybe this can mean this, and maybe it can mean that. I have no idea what it means. I just know that it says that they're riding horses. So, so here's, here's kind of the, the synopsis of this vision. The myrtle tree is, is nothing special, right? But Zechariah's vision was simple enough in, in what, we, what he saw. One man on horseback leading other horses and their riders, patrolling to and fro throughout the earth. That's what he's seeing. And Zechariah saw them among myrtle trees, in a ravine or in a hollow. Specifically, this reconnaissance mission examines the progress of rebuilding Jerusalem and other cities of Judah. It is here the examine of the work of God's people. So that's what he's seeing is this patrol that's happening throughout the earth. Um, the myrtle tree and the significance of the myrtle tree is that it's not some giant, crazy, mighty-looking tree. It's literally a, it's a, they call it a dwarf tree. Um, it's an evergreen, which it's pretty, and in the summertime it has these beautiful blooms that are incredibly fragrant. But it's just a dwarf little tree. It's not like a mighty oak or a redwood. Have you ever seen a redwood or a sequoia? 
not a Toyota Sequoia, but just a regular <laughs> Sequoia tree. It is impressive. It is shocking. It is, as a big man, makes me feel small, which is exciting. You know, when you see these trees that are just so huge, but that's not what Israel's compared to. They're compared to this bush. They're like this little dwarf tree. And some are like, well, what is the significance of it? I think the significance of it is God's amazing and strange grace for the nation of Israel. Remember, he says, I didn't choose you because you were the mightiest among nations. I chose you because I chose you and I love you. Like, that's it. And so the myrtle tree kind of explains that. Now, the angel of the Lord, the man is the angel of the Lord. And is no doubt in the Old Testament is the appearance of Jesus before his incarnation in Bethlehem, all other no, otherwise known as a Christophany or um, a picture of Christ. There are many examples of it in the Old Testament where we see the, uh, a heavenly man known as the angel of the Lord who's revealed to be God himself. Genesis has it twice, Exodus, Judges, and because Zechariah 1.11, we know that this man is the angel of the Lord and that he is God. So this is a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament, okay? And that's in that vision. Vision 2. Moving on. Am I talking really fast? Are you guys okay? You seem like you're being abused with words. Everyone's like, my ears are bleeding. I'm going really fast because I like you and I don't want to be here for three hours. So, vision two. The angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have not mercy on Jerusalem? That is not the vision. You can read that. It talks about God's protection over Israel. Now, the vision of the horns in verse 18. I raised my eyes and looked, and there were four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? So he answered me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. And the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming, uh, coming to do? So he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head. But the craftsmen coming and terrifying them to cast out the horns, the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of uh, Judah and scattered it. The four horns and the four craftsmen. Okay, So he has a vision of, of four horns. And I guess, I'm not sure what craftsman is. I guess I could have looked up more of the Hebrew of what that is. But the biblical in biblical times, horns spoke of strength and authority because the power of a bull or an ox is expressed through horns. We see that also in what other book? What are, there's horns in the book. There's horns in a vision. What other book is it? Someone shout it out. Daniel? Yes. Where else? Revelation. And what do both speak of? They speak of mighty nations, mighty kingdoms, um, speaks of the Antichrist. There's all these uh, kind of imagery that, that's part of that. But it represents strength throughout the Bible. Now, these horns are, they've scattered Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. Since Zechariah told us there are four of them, we wonder which four nations Zechariah spoke of here. If he spoke of the scattered uh, in a broad prophetic sense, including scattering them, um, they had yet come to God's people in his own day. Um, but it's likely the four horns are Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. So that's likely what he's talking about are those four kingdoms, those four uh, massive ruling nations. Now the craftsmen are coming to terrify them. He's saying that God raised up other nations to judge these nations that scattered his people from old. And God's promised to curse those who, who cursed Israel. Meaning that God didn't just let this happen and there's no retribution. That God takes care of Israel, right? He kept his promise, kept his covenant. If you bless Israel, I will bless you. If you curse them, I will curse you. Okay? You with me? That's what those visions are. 
Number three. Okay, chapter two. Then I raised my eyes and looked to behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. What other prophet had a measuring stick? A plumb line. He liked cookies. Amos, that's right. Famous Amos, right? Famous Amos. He has the plumb line. That's what he's known for, right? He holds up this measuring stick to Israel and he says, you guys are off. Like you're not straight. Like things are off in, in your life. And so we need to get back on track. Trying to make sense of these last 12 weeks of going. Anyway, so he says to them to measure Jerusalem, what is the width and length? But this is not in the sense of righteousness. He's not measuring righteousness. He's measuring space, like simply just taking inventory if there's enough space in Israel, if there's enough space in Jerusalem. You're like, enough space? Why would you need enough space? There's like no one there right now. Like it's in ruin. There's not even a temple built yet. Why do you need to start measuring? Because the Lord is speaking to Zechariah, looking ahead at all those that God would gather into his holy city. And look what it says in verse, um, in verse 5. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. God speaks of himself being a continual protection, a firewall around the nation of Israel. So they're measuring this place. They're, God's saying, we need to make sure there's enough room in this city because of what I'm going to do in this city. And, and he's like, well, what if everything's pouring out? Like, there's just not enough room. God says, I'm going to hold them in like a firewall. I'm going to protect them all around them. Speaking of God's protection of Israel, Guys, chapter 1, 2, 3, 6, 8, all speak about God's protection and his hand over Israel. And when it talks about Israel, okay, it literally means Israel. It's not talking about this hybrid version of the church in Israel and like that the church has replaced Israel in some way. That's called replacement theology. When the Bible talks about Israel and God keeping his promise to Israel, he will keep his promises to Israel. Like that's what it means. There's no secret meaning. There's no like, well, this is the switch, bait and switch thing. Like God's going to keep his promises to the church who is now Israel. No, God will keep his promise to the nation of Israel. As we have seen him do throughout all of history. Like we've seen God work and move and protect this nation that should not exist. It shouldn't. With the amount of wars and the amount of people that have tried to wipe them off the map. Iran in particular, who has a countdown clock of when they're going to nuke them and destroy them. They have threatened them for years that we will wipe you off the map. That's what our desire is. That is what Iran wants to do, is to destroy Israel, to remove it. And yet God has had his hand and protected them all the while. Crazy stuff, okay? Chapter three, the vision of the high priest. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at the right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, see, I've removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. Joshua was the high priest at the time, not the Joshua of Exodus, 
Um, this is a different Joshua. In this vision, in his vision, Zechariah saw the high priest in the presence of the Lord, and he was clothed with filthy garments. Now that that word filthy is one of the, the strongest words they can use in Hebrew. Um, and he's standing before the angel of the Lord, and that phrase means that it has the idea of priestly service, that he is ministering in the temple before the Lord. And Joshua wasn't in God's presence just as a spectator, but as a ministering priest. And then Satan shows up. <laughs> you know, Satan sometimes goes to church. He knows scripture better than we do. It's, it's insane the, the, the amount of truth he knows, but yet the amount of truth he rejects. That's what the Bible in the book of James, it says, you believe in God, fine, so do the demons. Like you can have an understanding that there is a God who exists, but if you do not have saving faith in that you put your full weight and trust into who God is, in, in that you're giving him your whole life in obedience to him, you're no different than the demons who understand that there is a God, but yet reject him with their life. That's what James is saying. But here is Satan who hated this whole scene. He hates it when God's people come into the presence of the Lord, and he hates it when they come into God's presence to serve and to honor the Lord. And what does the Lord say? The Lord rebuke you. Re yeah. Rebuke you in the authority of Jesus. In, in Jude chapter 1, verse 9, it tells us that Michael, the archangel, used the same phrase in battling against Satan. The example here of the angel of the Lord and of Michael shows us a model of spiritual warfare. That all of us go through some sort of spiritual warfare. It's not always your flat tire. Like when you get a flat tire and you're like, it's Satan. <laughs> it was Satan. I knew it. Not today, Satan. I wore my shirt. Okay. Life happens sometimes. Like you ran over a screw. Like that's what happened. Okay. Spiritual warfare is not you like leaving your kombucha on top of your car and driving off. You're like, it's the devil. It's the devil. Ruin my day. That's not, not necessarily, okay? Spiritual warfare takes place mainly within the mind, and it takes place mainly through lies. It takes place mainly through lies. Yes, things physically do happen. Absolutely. I'm not downplaying those things, but not to say that every time you trip, you're like, it's the devil. It's spiritual warfare. It's life. We live in a fallen world. You might fall down sometimes. You know, it just happens. But it gives us a model of how to battle in spiritual warfare, that we always should battle with the Lord's authority. In his authority, we fight from a place of victory, not from a place for victory. More than fighting, just for victory itself. But notice what he says about the firebrand. I was like, what does that even mean? Is this not a, a brand plucked for, what is this, Nike? What is a brand, what are we talking about? Or is this like a brand of a cow? Like, what are we describing here? A brand would be a log that would be thrown into fire and then completely charred. Like completely burnt, meaning it's good for nothing at that point. And that's what he says. It's a burnt, burning, or smoldering piece of wood. And he says, uh, it, it isn't worth much at all and will be consumed completely if it isn't plucked from the fire. And this is what he says. Are you not that smoldering wood that would be consumed if not for the Lord plucking you out? 
And again, it draws our attention to the grace of God, that the hand of God has been present in our life, and God has pulled us specifically chosen for uh, his pleasure. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. As Joshua the high priest stood in the presence of the Lord, Satan is accusing him on seemingly solid grounds. That the devil's coming and saying, look at this guy, he's filthy. He has no business serving you. He has no business being in this place. Nevertheless, the Lord fixed that problem by cleansing Joshua, taking away the filthy garments and the iniquity they represented. The Bible tells us that our, our good works, the best we could do, were as filthy rags. But we've been clothed in righteousness in Jesus Christ. The Hebrew word translated filthy is the strongest expression of Hebrew language for filth or the most vile and loathsome character. So Joshua not only enjoyed having his iniquity removed, but he also was given positive righteousness in its place. Now, moving forward, because we're nowhere near the end. Just go back and read verse 8 like for, for just and highlight it later. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. What? God, this, is my, this is the most precious thing that I... I possess. Um, and it goes on and goes on. Verse 13, be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. God woke up and they're like, you should just be quiet in the presence of a holy God. Verses 6 through 10 of chapter 3, we have a picture of the Messiah who is to come, right? It says in verse 8, hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that they have laid before Joshua. Upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts. So he says, there's a branch, and then there's a rock, and this rock has seven eyes. I told you. It's, it's weird. But, but he gets the translation of what it is. Um, this branch, the term branch is used several times as the title for the Messiah that is to come. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, uh, 11, verse 1, Jeremiah 23, 5, 33, 15. I'll give you these references if you really want. But the branch is associated with the fruitfulness and life. And Jesus used the same image when he said that he was the vine and we are the branches in John chapter 15. Now, Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, it says, In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. Speaking of the Messiah that is to come. Isaiah 11, 1, it says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and the branch shall grow out of his roots. Jesse was the father of David. And from David, from the line of David, would come the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. You know who else was in the line of David? Which is just crazy to me. Ruth was in the line of David. You know who else was in that line? Rahab the prostitute is in that line. She's included in the line of the Messiah. Speaking of the redemptive power of Christ... That anyone who turns their life over to Jesus, anyone who comes to him, look, God can redeem anything. 
He can redeem anything. And not only does he redeem it, he allows you to be part of his family. That's an incredible testimony to the power of God. So, for behold, he said, the stone I have laid before Joshua. If a branch seems weak, then God gives us another picture, a stone having seven eyes, which is super weird. In the thingy of the ancient world, eyes represented knowledge because they learn more through eyes than any other way. So the seven eyes speak of the perfection and fullness of the knowledge and wisdom of the Messiah. And he says, and I will grave in its inscription. Early Christians saw the engraving on the stone to be a picture of Jesus' wounds. The engraving could also be a mark of identification or beautification. We're not sure what this inscription is. However, it does say that in heaven we will all get a stone, a white stone, and on that stone is a new name for all of us. Is there a connection? I don't know. <laughs> but it just popped in my head. But here's, what, here's, here's more. Okay, there's more. Chapter 4. Chapter 4. This is looking into the future past the Messiah coming, as a result of the Messiah coming, dying on the cross, raising from the dead, uh, washing us cleanse, and cleansing us of our sin. Look what it says in verse 10. In that day, speaking of the future day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. This is a proverbial expression that it means prosperity and peace. Ultimately, this is the peace that the reign of the Messiah will bring. And this vision and word from Zechariah shows how much God wanted to encourage and strengthen Joshua, and he does it in the best way, setting his eyes on the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That is always the best way to encourage ourselves. You're having a rough day? Set your eyes on Jesus. Are you discouraged in your life? Are you discouraged in what's going on in the world? Are you discouraged nonstop because you think, what's the point Set your eyes on Jesus. We had questions come in this week to our, account, uh, our social media accounts that were like, how do we carry out, like we're supposed to be disciples of all nations right now. What does that look like in this kind of culture? It looks exactly like it has always looked. It's we need to go and make disciples of all nations. Guys, you may be discouraged, but that doesn't mean that we stop as the church doing what God has called us to do. You think, man, it's all over. I used to think that when I was a kid. When anytime there's a prophecy update, and they're like, Jesus is coming, 1997, and I'm like, man, I'm seven. Like, what? <laughs> like, oh man, like, what am I gonna do? Like, and it would always, for most people, they're like, yeah, Maranatha, which means like, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. Like, yeah, yeah. Like all these, you know, whiteheads are walking out of church. Like, yeah, burn this place. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, hey, I'm a little kid. <laughs> Like, I still want to, like, drive. Like, is that bad? You know, like, like to maybe have a wife at some point. If that's, you know, I know God's a God of miracles, you know. And like that, maybe that'll happen. And, um, you know, it happened. So, so all that to say, like, it used to discourage me as a, as a young person. Because I thought, well, man, there's nothing left for me to do for the kingdom of God. It's already been done. That is not, that's never the intention of, of the thought of Jesus returning. What is, the, what is the thought of Jesus returning always encouraging the church to do? We need to dig deeper. Tell more people about Jesus. There is work to be done. What does Jesus say? Work while it is day, for the night will come. Like, 
if you feel like time is short, it's this emboldening to say there's so much to do. There is so much to do for the kingdom of God before Jesus comes. So be encouraged as I, as a young person, was encouraged. Now, chapter four, this is one of the other visions. <clears throat> it says, now the angel who talked with me came back and, wakened, and awakened me as a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I'm looking and there is a lampstand of solid gold, the bowl on top of it, and on the stand seven lamps and seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one by the right of the bowl and the other in the left. So I answered and spoke to the angel and talked with me saying, what are these, my Lord? So he sees, um, what he sees are two fig trees, or sorry, two olive trees and a lampstand with seven pipes or seven uh, flutes that go to it, like a menorah, right? You have the seven things. And it's this picture of, it's the same thing that was used in the tabernacle, um, you can go back to the tabernacle and all this connects with Jesus. And in, in the tabernacle, the only source of light in the tabernacle was the menorah. Like was, was this seven candled uh, lampstand. It was speaking of the fact that Jesus is the light of the world, right? And you can go through the tabernacle and see, you know, there was a table of showbread. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. You can see everything pointed to Christ through the tabernacle. Now, um, this these um, trees that were there were pumping straight into um, this menorah, like everlasting olive oil that was causing these things to burn. So they didn't have to constantly be changing these things out and watching. It was just this constant flow. And it says the two olive trees were by it and, and the right and the left, and they were pumping this oil in. And right after this, we're going ha- to see in verse um, verse 6, it's going to speak on the Spirit of God. Now, oil throughout the Bible is a type or a picture of the Holy Spirit. And now we have this verse about the Holy Spirit. Look what it says in verse 6. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord of Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. He's speaking of the building of the temple, this, this rebuilding of Jerusalem. He's saying, be encouraged. It's not going to be by your might. It's not going to be by your power. It's going to be by the Spirit of God. The work is going to happen, but it's going to be a supernatural work that comes by the Spirit of God. By staying connected to God, the flow of His Spirit to you, you are going to be able to do what you, by your own might and by your own power, cannot do. And then he says, and it shall bring forth the capstone, which is also another picture of Jesus. Um, I'm going to skip all this other stuff because it's a lot of stuff. The capstone, verse 7, it says, Who are you, O great mountain before Zerubbabel, who shall come to plain? And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace to grace and grace to it. In Ezra chapter 3, now, now this capstone, it's speaking of the near fulfillment, but also a fulfill, it's fulfilled in Jesus, the chief cornerstone of the new temple. The church not made in brick or out of, uh, or not just made out of brick or mortar, but it's now made out of individuals and that God would dwell in the midst of his people, right? You with me? Okay. I know this is a lot and it feels like I'm just, just information dumping on you, but that's the book of Zechariah. So Ezra chapter three, verse 11. Okay, remember Ezra 
and uh, Haggai and Zechariah all kind of fit into the same time frame. Nehemiah as well. Ezra says, and they sang responsively. Chapter 3, verse 11, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Right? It speaks of that moment where, where suddenly the foundation that was in ruin is now built, and they begin to sing and praise because the chief cornerstone that held it all together was coming. Psalm 118 speaks of the fact that it would be discarded in a messianic prophecy, looking ahead to the fact that Jesus would be crucified and rejected. Psalm 118.22, it says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Speaking of Jesus. The one who holds it all together. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, speaking again of the cornerstone, it says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fit together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Guys, Christ was predicted to come a long time ago, and it happened. His future coming is also predicted and is prophesied, and it is going to happen. Prophecy always encourages us, especially when we see it fulfilled in this sense. I mean, it's, that's what he's speaking of. Zechariah saying, this is the capstone that's, that's being presented, not only there at the temple when it's completed, but also in the future, the, the one who is to come, Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone who is rejected by its builders. Who were the builders? The Jews. They crucified him. It was their Messiah, and they crucified him. He was the capstone. He was the one who was going to complete it. Listen to this. Listen to this. Check this out. Jesus talks about how he is the door, right? The door to the sheepfold. In these pens, listen, this is insane. Check this out. In the pens, they would have these, these it looked like a sea, and there was a gap for the door. And who would lay in front of it? The shepherd. Jesus said, I am what? I am the chief shepherd, and I am also the door. And you're like, how could you be a shepherd and a door at the same time? Like this, because in front of the door would lay the, the shepherd. He would touch one foot on one side, and he would have his back up against the other. Jesus said that my sheep, I go into the sheepfold. My sheep hear my voice, and I lead them out. What we see is in this half circle of the sheepfold is the prophets and the law and what completes it is Christ himself opening the door for the Jews inside to come out and to join a fold, right? Jesus said, there is a fold in which you do not know. Who is it? Gentiles. The completion of it all, the capstone, the cornerstone, they rejected it and it says it right here and they shall bring forth the capstone and they're gonna rejoice grace. And they did, didn't they? Hosanna, Hosanna. Glory to God in the highest peace. Like, here he is. And just a week later, they would crucify him. Guys, 
The Bible is not about you. It is about Jesus. Just to encourage you tonight. So if you're like, it's not speaking to me. Hey, it's about Jesus. Like, how come I'm not in here? Because it's not about you. <laughs> um, yeah, so I got lost in all those things. And we're going to move a little bit quicker because I've been taking a really long time. But there's a lot of stuff. Right? Remember, it's a high concentration of prophecy in a little, in a little bit. But here's what happens. There's another vision, and it's really weird. Chapter 5 reads like a horror film. There's a woman who's in a basket or like in a purse. And these two angels come with stork's wings, it says. Like the wings of a stork, no joke. And they, God shoves her in, caps it, and then the, the angels grab each side of it and fly it up into the air, and they hover above the earth over this place called Shinar. And that's it. Like, that's the end of the vision. You're like, oh, cool. What does this mean? Guys, I have no idea what it means. And most people, guess what? They don't know either. They guess, but I don't know. So we're going to move on. That's another vision. There's a vision of four chariots, also crazy, um, which is cool. Chapter 7, obedience is better than fasting. God says, what do I want? I want obedience. Do I want you to look all like, oh, and sad because you're fasting and trying to earn my favor? No, do what I say. That'll be enough. Moving on, chapter 8. Whew. And this is where I wanted to focus. I want you guys to see the prophecies of Zechariah fulfilled in the New Testament, okay? There's more visions. They're gnarly. We can talk about it later if you really want to, but I don't want to. So, so <laughs> entry of, the Zion, of Zion's lowly king, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Okay, Zechariah prophesied that the Messiah would come and he would come on a donkey, not just any kind of donkey, a colt, a baby donkey, like a foal of a donkey, and a donkey that has never been ridden. That, that's what it comes down to. The, the prophecy is so specific. Now, Jewish rabbis taught this. If the people are ready, their king will come on a horse. If they're not ready, the king will come, the Messiah will come on a donkey. Rabbinical teaching. Jesus came first time on a donkey because the people were not ready for their Messiah. He comes again his second time, how? On a great white horse, a Cavallo Blanco, a giant stinking white horse to make war as a conquering king. Now, he comes, Matthew 21. We're coming up on Palm Sunday soon. Matthew 21, verses 4 and 5, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethage on the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Jesus rode into Jerusalem down the Mount of Olives, 
on a little baby donkey, right? Zechariah predicted this some 800 years before Jesus came. Now, also, the sale of Jesus by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. Check this out. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 4. Thus says the Lord God, feed the flock of, uh, for slaughter. Those own owners slaughter them and feel no guilt. Those who sell them say, bless the Lord, for I am rich. And the shepherds not pay them. Verse 13. Thank you. Here we go. Then I said to them, verse 12. Then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. Then they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that pricely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Check this out. Matthew chapter 27, verse 9. It says, then it was fulfilled... What was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying, and they took 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Remember, Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. In his deep conviction, throws it at the priest's feet, and he says, take this as blood money. Like, I want nothing to do with it. Take it back. I, ch- I changed my mind. And they say, what are we going to do with this money? It's blood money. And so they bought a potter's field with it. <clears throat> it's a pretty specific prophecy, isn't it? That's not even the best one. You ready? Okay. Zechariah 12, verse 10. says this. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his own son and grieve for him as one who grieves for his firstborn. Piercing. Speaking of the fact that Jesus would be run through in his hands and his feet with a nail some 10 to 12 inches long. He was pierced. And you think, man, maybe that could have, they could have understood in those times. Listen, crucifixion has not been invented yet. Who's the ruling power at this time in Zechariah's time? Persians. Who is the fourth horn who hasn't come yet? Rome. Crucifixion was invented by the Romans. So before it's even invented, the Bible says and prophesied that Jesus would be pierced. Not only in his hands and his feet, but he'd be pierced in his side with a spear. And they would mourn over the one that they had pierced. Crucifixion was a Roman way of execution. The Jewish way of execution was stoning. The Jews had had that privilege taken from them. And so the only way that they could have Jesus put to death was by crucifixion. You can't make this up. Like, we can't make it up. Who, who would spend all this time to make that up? The, the Bible predicts the way that Jesus not only would come, but also the way in which he would die. And the way that they would mourn over the one that they had pierced. In verse 30, uh, John chapter 19, verse 37, it says, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And immediately blood and water came out. And he who was seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. What does John say? 
I'm testifying of this so that you would believe in the person of Jesus Christ, right? The whole point of John writing his gospel is so that you would believe and have faith in Jesus Christ. And he points out the fact that Jesus was pierced in his side. And look at what he says later. And again, for these things were done that the scriptures should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. John says, I want to recall to your mind what scripture has said and what it prophesied so that you would believe in the person of Jesus Christ. It said it in Zechariah. It said it in this other place that he quotes, and I can't remember what it is, but he says it's quoted, it's predicted, they would pierce him, and they would weep over it. But it says in chapter 13, verse 1, In that day a fountain shall be opened from the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. The fountain that is open for sin, it says it shall be open. The fountain shall be not just a, a simply open, but shall be remaining open. It is this fountain of, of the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin, is what he is saying. This fountain from the house of David is open to any and to all because of Jesus' death upon the cross. Um, this really smart man named Boyce, he said this, the idea of God being a fountain to his people is found frequently in the Old Testament, but Zechariah's treatment is possibly the richest of all. The idea of sin, a sin-cleansing fountain not also, has also been a part of famous hymns. We said it earlier tonight. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee speaks of the vulnerability of Jesus Christ to allow himself to be cut and pierced that we might hide in him. Speaking of the, the cleft of the rock that Moses hid in in the Old Testament as the glory of God passed by and he hid him there in the cleft of the rock. So Jesus was cleft for us so that in, we could experience the glory of God. Ah. The, the word of God is inexhaustible to the fact that God richly and deeply loves you and cares for you and everything written in this book is so that you would believe in him and know him and spend eternity with him. Everything. God wrote all this stuff down. He gave Zechariah a horrible night's sleep and these crazy visions and these crazy prophecies so that we could sit here in this room and read him and go, oh my goodness, God is big. It's insane. This is written like 520 BC. <sighs> Nuts. Charles Spurgeon said this, according to the verse before us, this provision is inexhaustible. There is a fountain open, not a cistern nor a reservoir, but a fountain. A fountain continues still to bubble up and is as full after 50 years as it is the first. And even so, the provision and the mercy of God for the forgiveness and the justification of our souls continually flows and overflows. This means by which sin and sinfulness can be put away are at this moment accessible in the son, to the sons of men. The atonement is not a fountain hid and concealed Enclosed and barred and bolted, it is a fountain open. 
Man. There's more. But I think we've all had enough of the book of Zechariah. Maybe you haven't, and we'll talk later. But it talks about the day of the Lord. It talks about the millennial reign of Christ, that Jesus will be crowned king over all. I want to read you one last verse, and we'll close here. It's chapter 14, verse 9. We're going to start in verse 8, actually. It says, And in that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. There's this really cool verse about horses and bells too that we just have to read because it's cool. Chapter 14, verse 20. It says, In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bulls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. And everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day, there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. It says the horses will have these bells on them. And as they walk, they'll ring. And engraved on them, it'll say holiness to the Lord. Holy is the Lord. Ringing out, shouting out as the, as the 24 elders are forever before the Lord, praising him and worshiping and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So Zechariah not only points us to the future of the Messiah who was to come, who came once, but is coming again, who will rule and reign and set up his kingdom once again. Now, I know that this was not an in-depth by any means study. And if you have any questions, ask Hollow. He is an expert on the book of Zechariah. But, man, it is just, it's, it's just sometimes so good to be reminded of how small we are and how big God is. And this whole thing, from start to finish, God is the one in control and sovereign over all things. Even in, in the Babylonian captivity, even in the Assyrian captivity, even the Persians, even Rome that was to come, God was never, ever out of control. God was, was, was moving and working to save you and I, to save humanity. So, may we be encouraged. Let's pray.